Hello and welcome to BSI's Big Sustainability Ideas podcast, hosted by David Thatcher, Sebastian Van Dort and Nick Fleming, who between them have deep sector experience in energy, ESG, transport and mobility. The idea is an ambitious one, but simple too. Each episode, our aim is to meet with many of the biggest, most influential figures in sustainability to understand where we are, how we got here and crucially, where this fascinating topic is headed to help all of us navigate the future. Thank you for joining us and we hope you enjoy the show. Okay, hello um, everyone. So today um, we thought we'll have a, uh, a high level conversation around uh, COP26. Obviously it's uh, dominated most of our uh, calendars and corporate calendars for the last, uh, last few months. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of a very big thing in the sustainability calendar. David, as our man on, on the ground at, at COP26, um, curious to know what your sort of, um, um, you know, expectations were going in and, and, and how how you found the event um, being there. Yeah, no, thanks, Seb. Um, I think in terms of expectations, it was initially one in which I was hearing a lot about things called the blue zone and the green zone and trying to in my head work out um which was which and and what what that all meant i um bsi had had um applied and been uh, afforded the uh, the status of observer um which is different to the the government reps who are there as being parties because cop stands for the conference of the party so Clearly, I knew we weren't going to be actually in the room where you know negotiations took place and 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 uh, heads of state were there uh, to make statements and and commitments. But I knew there was, like I say, this sort of blue and green, and uh, it just took a little while to kind of during the summer get my head around that. And there was then a little bit of. Um, conversations we were having uh, with other organizations that were observers as to how we might collaborate with events that took place. Um, and most of those actually, in fact, all of those then took place in the blue zone. So I'll, I'll probably come back and describe about a bit more about those events and, and what that meant. But um, in terms of getting there, I think you're, yeah, you're sort of struck by the, the size of the venues that are hosting this two-week uh, marathon jamboree on on everything under the kind of esg umbrella um i think you're you're struck also by the fact it really is a global event um you know just chatting to people as we waited to go through the uh, understandable airport style security talking to delegation delegates from rwanda from um uh, you know guyana um you know a truly global event um and also in those conversations when you explained who you were from what I thought was interesting was initially a, a sense of, um, oh, so, you know, wh- why would you be here? You're a standards body. And then once you explain, which I guess is partly what we're talking about on this this broadcast, why you explain the relevance of standards to the UN's greater ambition in terms of um, climate action, net zero, and, and topics like, you know, biodiversity, energy, transport, finance, then the kind of penny drops and people go, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, that's, you, you're really important, huh, aren't you? So that was kind of an, an interesting um, uh, awakening in that sense. You realise that actually in a subtle way, the, the role of standards uh, and standards bodies is actually really critical, but often perhaps previously overlooked maybe. Um, so yeah, 
to sum up, I suppose, struck by the scale of it uh, in terms of numbers and the, uh, the the truly international nature of people there, and um, and just you know, the, the organisation that goes into something like that was really quite staggering, and for the most part, worked very well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I found it in the months leading up kind of a bit perplexing, but as as the time drew near, sort of got my head around exactly what it was that. Um, we felt that BSI wanted to achieve from its presence at COP, and it was about um, really getting, uh, I think, this message of of standards as being sort of enablers for um, the transition to net zero, uh, accelerating um, the non-state actors, the business uh, journey. Um, and I think the role of standards bodies as conveners um, was really an important message we wanted to get across, and I think we did. Uh, and um, in a way, I suppose, just establishing BSI as as having um, expertise within its uh, its team there, um, both on the on the ground, but also back at base, and that would then hopefully promote further conversations, of which actually many are now happening on the back of COP. Yeah, I was going to ask you both of you about your sort of overall sort of feelings, and really to discuss your sort of you know fifty thousand sort of foot of this, but. Um, on the back of what you said, I wanted to sort of jump in because one of the things that, that really sort of stood out for me is, and this is not because we, we are sort of the national standards body, but but one of the things that really, you know, we, we've talked a lot about standards really being crucial to support that transition to, to net zero. And one of the things that sort of, you know, stood out for me right at the opening about the United Nations Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, in his opening speech, highlighted the importance of standards. Which, which to me was sort of a, a big sort of endorsement. You know, there's a lot of sort of questions on, on what kind of standards and, and, and what they mean. But to me, you know, the, the, the things we've been saying for the last few years to say if we're transitioning to net zero standards, you know, do play that vital, vital role. For me, it was good to sort of have that outside validation because obviously in the national standards body, you know, the thing we look at is standards. For me, it was very good to see, to see that sort of outside uh, view of standards. So I, I don't know if you... Um, you guys, uh, you know, David and Nick, have any sort of view on on what you felt, you know, that message did, and then how you feel standards were were, were part of the sort of COP26, you know, discussions. Really, that they, they seem to be there seem to be a wider recognition among stakeholders that that standards do have a have a clear role to play. I don't know if you guys have any sort of thoughts on that. Yeah, Nick, shall I maybe go first and then um, hand it over to you? It's, it's one of those experiences, I suppose, when, you know, if you're in in the middle of something or other, maybe your perception of something is a little bit different when you're perhaps outside. And obviously, let's kind of be honest that, you know, that particular statement, among other statements he made in his opening address on the 1st of November, it, it didn't, you know, it wasn't the, the lead story in, in you know, uh, News at 10. But when that particular message kind of dropped and and if you're in the stand as well, you go, ah, okay, that's interesting. I think he actually sort of termed it as being, you know, um, we need greater clarity in supporting organisations' efforts to reduce emissions. And um, that led into him talking about the fact that, yeah, standards are really helpful, but sometimes there's a, a bit of a, maybe a jungle of standards out there, which uh, is less helpful. So that, yeah, that inevitably was something we picked up on as we arrived. Um, and then that, in a way, became somewhat the theme, certainly, of those first few days as to how we can make sure that, that that's something that uh, can, in a way, run, well, run throughout the entire two-week event, but it becomes something where we would reference it when we spoke to other organisations that we were there um, connecting to. And a lot of it, like any, you know, 
dare I say, trade event is where you're making connections and you're having conversations almost in the margins of some of the other stuff that's happening. And we would refer back to that 1st of um, November statement. And those organizations we were talking to would go, ah, yeah, yeah, I can see exactly why you're here now. Um, so it, it lit a fire in a way, and and that that's a, a positive thing. Um, Nick, I don't know whether you know, your perception, as it were, not in Glasgow, and and was was of it being such a seismic kind of statement. I think generally, I, I was down uh, in London on um, the coinciding with COP twenty six Transport Day, um, the Move twenty twenty one conference down in London, and you know there was there was definite recognition that, that there were um you know serious commitments being made at cop 26 related to transport um and i think you know uh, a real understanding that there needs to be some global alignment and international cooperation so perhaps without standardization being specifically mentioned a, a very much a recognition that it's a global challenge and we need global alignment and collaboration and I think standards requires both of those things to be effective. So perhaps standardization was implied as one of the as one of the solutions here without being explicit in 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 that sense. Yeah, yeah. go on, sorry, sir. Ask you David. Oh, I was just gonna say, I mean, you know, it's maybe it's important for I mean, people listening to this, they may not realise perhaps the origins of of uh, ISO and, and then IEC, which is its Electrotechnical twin. I mean, these are organisations that are member um, organisations, but you know, the first meeting of ISO took place in London in 1946, um, and at the Institute of Civil Engineers, one Great George Street. Now, it was an organisation whose um, it, its genesis began really with the UN, which itself was a, a new body in 1945, uh, kind of for obvious reasons, uh, calling upon. Um, standards bodies that have thus far been established to kind of collaborate um, with a view to, you know, if we're going to rebuild the world economy after Second World War, we need to have consistency in terms of, you know, measurement and metrification, et cetera, et cetera. So the UN, the UN, um, ISO is not a UN body, but it was something that happened because the UN called it into being, as it were. Um, I think it's interesting that, yeah, that then we have 75 years later, after that first meeting of ISO in London, uh, we then have the UN, uh, you know, Secretary General calling upon there uh, to be, you know, greater collaboration around standardisation. Um, and I think ISO and IEC uh, responded to that, as did BSI, by welcoming those statements, but 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 positioning in a way ourselves as being the, the means by which that that process can be accelerated. And in the middle of that, just to sort of you know put that into context as well, the ISO uh, this year's ISO General Assembly also took place in London, and BSI. Um, uh, was responsible for something called the London Declaration being put forward into ISO and signed at that assembly meeting in London in September, which is uh, an agreement by ISO and its member bodies that it um, that all future standards and all those standards that are are going to be subject to review need to recognise and incorporate climate science. Uh, going forwards. Um, and also, as importantly, the second part of the London Declaration is that all those um, organisations and stakeholders that um, ISO members work with, um, those 
particularly most vulnerable, most vulnerable to climate change, be they organisations, but also member bodies within ISO as well, particularly um, island uh, member bodies. Those most vulnerable to climate change uh, need to be more included in those um, the shaping of international standards at ISO IEC level as well, because, um, like I say, it's important all those voices are heard. So. It, that's, that wasn't just kind of uh, serendipity in a way that BSI pushed hard for the London Declaration to be signed at the meeting in September to mark 75 years of ISO, but also in recognition of the UK hosting in Glasgow, not London, the UN um, COP meeting, because that those words, London Declaration, in the conversations we had in Glasgow became the, the means by which, um, you know, discussions got really opened up in terms of the value that standards can bring to to meet, uh, to help the UN achieve um, its own ambition in terms of climate action. Yes, and I'm, I'm just jumping in there, Nick, because uh, <clears throat> you, you were sort of saying these sort of implicit uh, communications for the need for standards, but I think I think what was quite refreshing was both the implicit and explicit communication on, on the need for standards and, and sort of wider transparency, which which makes it very exciting for us to see, you know, where, you know, we always said standards can enable and accelerate. Well, actually, there is that wider recognition now that they need to be part of that. So, you know, that's very exciting for, for standards um, bodies. Now, now, that was obviously one sort of big sort of thing from a standards point of view that stood out for me. Um, there was another thing that, that you know, I, I thought I'll, I'll bring up, which is the sort of big, you know, if we're talking high level 50,000 for the, the big one that, that sort of stood out for me was obviously the um, call to sign up to phasing out of, uh, of coal. Obviously, the final language was changed to, to instead of phasing out of coal, of unabated coal, it was referred to a phase down. I think many countries were sort of you know, rightly disappointed by this, and many countries sort of openly expressed their, you know, profound disappointment. Um, interestingly, um, Jennifer Morgan, who's an executive director of Greenpeace, um, I, I don't know her sort of directly, but I came across a quote from her, which sort of sums up my feelings, and be interesting to sort of know what you guys feel about that. But she sort of mentioned, oh, she said, um, you know, quote, they changed the word, but they can't change the signal. The era of coal is ending and, and to me, that was sort of the, the overall feeling that, you know, the, the, you know, uh, I think a lot was sort of achieved, but, but I think people had sort of higher ambitions. But but for me, that there was a sort of very interesting part that actually, yes, you know, that is sort of, you know, the, the direction of this now is very much set in motion. You know, it, it's no longer, you know, we're not talking about sort of rules and what we want to do. And we're actually saying, what do we want to do? And how are we going to do that? And we're really looking at sort of implementation. So even though, you know, you know, some environmentalists are, are not sort of fully happy with the output of COP. I'm, 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 I'm you know, speaking on, on, you know, personal capacity here. You know, I, I am sort of pleased with, you know, the very much a direction of implementation and looking at how are we going to do this rather than, you know, it, it doesn't feel like a distant goal like it did years ago. It now feels like net zero. How are we going to make this happen as a global community, which, you know, is, is you know very exciting to me. I don't know if you guys have any sort of view on, on that sort of big, big output from from COP. Yeah, it's interesting, Seb. Thinking about implementation, so I I think there were some good examples of this coming out of COP in relation to transport in particular. So a couple spring to mind, but um, <clears throat> we've had the Zero Emission Vehicle Transition Council that was set up 
I think it was set up last year. Signatories from Europe, but also Japan, South Korea, um, uh, Mexico, Canada. The US were on there previously as as uh, represented through California, but have now joined the um, the Zero Emission Vehicle Transition Council as as co-chair with the UK, which I think was quite a significant change. Um, but going back to your to your point about implementation, they've launched uh, their first annual action plan to really kind of um, really I think help to ramp up the transition and uh, kind of capture enshrine that uh, the global cooperation that's needed. So I, I was certainly seeing that that kind of move, as you say, from setting the goals to starting to work out how we go about achieving those goals, not just limited to um, to road transport, actually. There were also some quite telling announcements at COP um, related to decarbonising maritime and also in the aviation sector. Um, some interesting announcements there in relation to the uh, International Aviation Climate Ambition Coalition. So this will be a new um, a new uh, organisation that's set up to to try and ensure that uh, you know the the quite ambitious targets around achieving the decarbonised aviation sector are met. So yeah, very much a case of switching from setting the goals to okay. So how do we actually achieve those goals? I think um, yeah, I should probably again put put a little bit into context in terms of both. BSI's representation uh, at the event in terms of the number of people we were able to send, but also, um, again, just for those listening, if if you you pick up on things like yeah, transport day or finance day and how that works. So uh, you know, essentially across the two weeks, the first two days were very much uh, um, devoid of themed days because it was all about these um, the, the two days of heads of state coming together and some of these big announcements on on deforestation and uh, methane. And then some of the other statements were specifically held back until you had finance day, energy day, transport day, as, as Nick and Seb were saying. Um, and I think in a, in a way, we, we had um, uh, four, uh, four of the team from BSI were at uh, uh, COP, uh, I'd say we were kind of under this sort of observer status flag. Um, had we had double that amount, then it would have been great, Nick, for example, you would have been, particularly on Transport Day, I'm sure worked very hard because there'll be lots of different industry groups and lots of different national pavilions um, that had a, a particular, you know, interest in transport, mobility, aerospace uh, running events where, you know, you would have been able to sort of be there to, to be our voice or our, our eyes and ears, but also our voice. So I think in a way, um, from my perspective, it, it wasn't the case that I was able to get really into the thick of it on energy or transport or adaptation and resilience, which I think was the, the first day of the second week, uh, and some other themes. It was just trying to, as best we can with the small numbers we had, sort of uh, get some kind of representation at, at some of those events where um, they were talking in a slightly sort of you know more meta sense about the ambition of of COP26 and the UNFCCC, which is the the host organisation. So um, uh, that's that's why in a way it's great that the fact we've got the sort of sector expertise uh, with with you know Seb and Nick and others as well on things like food manufacturing, built environment because buildings was another theme as well. So. So it, it enabled us almost to sort of um, 
absorb some of the the, the noises coming out of, of Glasgow and then process that back in London, as it were, and and, and turn that into sort of you know st- statements. Uh, the one the one. Um, day where uh, we did actually have um, uh, a special uh, representation was because we hosted an event. It was a a fringe event outside of the main uh, Blue Zone building in central Glasgow, but that was Finance Day on the 3rd of November, the first Wednesday, where BSI hosted an event there. And and arguably that that is a nice, um, I guess, segue into, um, you know, what, what COP does, which is it brings together sector uh, experts and sector uh, leads um, from different uh, uh, countries and different organisations, but also has these horizontal themes like finance. So I think we all know that, you know, the financial sector has this unique mobility, a unique ability to mobilise capital to uh, respond to global challenges. And um, what the, the purpose of our event, as you'd not be surprised to know, was about the role of standards and consistent uh, terminology and taxonomy um, to support um, the financial sector as it goes on its own sort of journey to, um, you know, if we the, the saying is, if we can uh, green finance, then it can then finance green. And right now, I think one of the challenges is that the, the industry itself is maybe somewhat perplexed by the, uh, the 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 sheer volume of different sort of ESG indicators that are being thrown its way. And it needs maybe some more consistent language that enables it to, um, you know, invest in, in uh, uh, businesses and in, in sort of projects that actually will deliver on both environmental, but as importantly, social uh, impact um, as well. So that was the purpose of our event where we had um, uh, the, the Financial Conduct Authority, because obviously regulators have an important role to play, but also experts on concepts like natural capital, but um, representation from the fund management industry in Scotland and also the the more uh, big infrastructure um, green investment group on, on a panel that we ran as well, and they're based in Edinburgh. And this was an event actually that we were able to um, host um, care of the Scottish government who um, were able to provide the Scottish business secretary or Scottish business minister to um, to provide a kind of keynote at that event. So um, that was great because it, it, it very much put us on, on um, uh, you know, the sort of top table of, of some uh, uh, Scottish government events that were being run in parallel with the uh, actual COP event itself. Yeah, and as we're talking about sort of high level um observations, you know, that, that those observations of standards being important, you know, coal. Um, the, the, the other thing that I sort of seen to me, and, and you know, you, you will know more about, you know, obviously being there, but there seemed to be a big sort of, A, quite a large corporate presence uh, compared to the previous and, and, and B, a, a big sort of focus on, on finance. And, and again, this is where that sort of looking at the sort of implementation side of things, there were a lot of sort of big um, financial statements, uh, you know, for, from from sort of finance sector, it, it seems like they're very much up for it. I think Mark Carney famously sort of mentioned that you know, 130 trillion dollars of financial assets, you know, need to support the transition to, to net zero. You know, that, that there were some some very big sort of statements, and finance seemed to be sort of one of the big sort of focus areas. Was that sort of um, you know, when you were there, did that feel like, like that? Or is that something that we observed when we were on the outside to go, wow, you know, these, these are, you know, some big topics coming out there? 
Yeah, I mean, like I said, there was um, every day that was themed. So that's kind of every day really outside of the first two days, uh, normally led with some either international um, sort of statements that, that, you know, I guess if you're in that industry would make you go, wow. Um, and in the case of the finance day, uh, and maybe I was more focused on the UK here, but, you know, uh, the Chancellor, uh, Rishi Sunak, came up with a, a phrase which kind of resonated with me, which is that, you know, we need to, um, we being government, need to, you know, put in place measures that en- enable the entire rewiring of the financial system for net zero. And I, I kind of picked up on that phrase when I um, sort of introduced the the panel at the event I hosted, because to me, you know, rewiring requires, um, you know, both uh, standards of, of knowledge uh, to make sure that rewiring is effective, but also requires practitioners who are kind of trained in rewiring. So, you know, it, it in a way, once again, reinforced the, the role that standards can play working with, you know, regulators like the FCA. Um, I, I probably wouldn't, I mean, I suppose, yeah, that there probably was a kind of corporate, um, sort of drumbeat across every day, because I guess when you had the transport day, then there would be a a corporate drumbeat from those sort of, you know, uh, original equipment manufacturers, the OEMs, uh, you know, making noises of of support to, you know, some of the commitments. And, and likewise, I think energy. I mean, the other thing I'll probably say, just from walking around the main exhibition, because Again, you know, if you haven't been to COP before, maybe this one was a bit different. I don't know. But uh, certainly the one in 2019 was quite muted because it was going to be in Chile and then uh, got moved to Madrid at the last minute. So I think it was quite scaled down compared to previous ones. But I think I think Glasgow was um, pretty big, even with uh, you know many COVID restrictions. So I guess there was a, a corporate presence even across other um, physical stands. Um and some may say, well, that's kind of not appropriate because it's partly, you know, big companies and corporations that have got us where we are now. But I think there was a sense of maybe, you know, aligning with the event to be seen to be doing the right thing. Um, uh, and, and yeah, what I just found interesting about that main Blue Zone exhibition um, space was the fact you had event, <coughs> events that were either on a national level, so you have national pavilions, whether it's Japan, Saudi Arabia, um, you know, Rwanda, UK, and also thematic ones as well. So you'd have something on um, you know, from WWF talking about marine plastics, but you'd also have a, an event maybe from the, the nuclear World Nuclear Association, uh, which obviously are talking about, you know, um, you know, energy and uh, low carbon energy. Um, so there was a lot to sort of digest. And yeah, inevitably, there were there were corporate, um, there was a corporate presence there. But uh, I thought that was important in a way that it wasn't just NGOs, it was it was corporations aligning with NGOs to be seen to be, um, you know, trying to, um, like I say, be be part of the solution. Um, when arguably some would say that they have been, you know, uh, part of the problem. I think that that's an yeah. important point, David, that you touched upon there. Because certainly, if we look at the automotive industry, there was a few, yeah, high-profile OEMs that that were involved in COP. Um, and you know, meet um, committing to um, to committing to try and meet the 2035 deadline in terms of ending the sale of new cars and vans, or ensuring that they're zero emission by 2035 at least. And there was a few perhaps high-profile OEMs that weren't 
there and, and weren't committing to that. But it wasn't just OEMs. We also had, um, which I thought was interesting, kind of fleet fleet owners and operators there, which you know, given given the impact that, that road transport has on carbon emissions, I think it's a really important um, you know it's change to start um, ensuring that uh, that the, what we're trying to achieve here is is looking at the fleets um, as well as you know private vehicles um, that is really encapsulating commercial vehicles as well. So yeah, I thought it was an interesting, diverse uh, mix. Um, I, I also feel that as well as as well as COP being a catalyst for what's what change needs to happen globally, it's it's an interesting platform, isn't it, for 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 domestic change as well. And we're very UK centric, so off the back of COP, we've seen the UK government making a lot of complementary announcements or you know announcements that are extensions of COP. We're probably less aware of what other countries are doing off the back of COP. But but we've seen even even in the last 24 hours, um, UK government announcing that, that a change in the law from next year that would mean all new buildings, um, uh, domestic and, um, and uh, office buildings and other kinds of buildings would need to include EV charge points, for instance. Mm. Um, so it will be interesting to see, in addition to that global global push and alignment, what is happening, you know, domestically, country to country, to kind of accelerate some of what was agreed at COP. I, I think the UK announcement today around change, you know, the changes to the law, proposed changes to the law to ensure that whether it's new, you know, domestic dwellings, new private dwellings, or supermarkets that are being refurbed or office buildings make provision for EV charge points is quite a significant step. Um, but yeah, I, I just think it's interesting because we are very UK focused to see how the rest of the world takes COP away back to their <laughs> back home and what they do with it, really. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right. I think uh, I'm, I'm not going to respond by, to that other than agreeing to you, agreeing with you. I mean, I, I can't I can't even give you an example of maybe where there's been some uh, acknowledged change in a certain country on the back of COP26. But I think you're right to pick up on this idea that, that uh, you know, all credit to the UK government, you know, they, I think they, 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 I mean, it's, it's a UN event, but obviously the UK is kind of the host, but I think they, they, they put on a good show in the sense that they, they made the right commitments and the right noises when that was called upon, but, but that's not stopped since then as well. And another example was, um, I think last week, I, I lose track of the week sometimes, you know, the uh, environment bill was given the royal assent. Now that was something that's been sort of bubbling around parliament through the commons and back to the law, to the laws and back to the commons and all through the different reporting stages for quite a while now. And I think some people thought that would never happen. I, I don't know what part of me wonders whether some of it was even sort of held back so that it became another kind of, Good news story, perhaps on the back of COP26. But, but just to give one, you know, one example of that, we, we we've talked about some of these um, theme days, but nature was another theme as well. Um, and uh, you know, within the environment bill, is um, it, it it covers the environmental land management system that is the means by which landowners are going to be, um, you know, uh, remunerated um, for, you know, their role as kind of custodian of, of, of nature. 
now that we've come out of the EU, and obviously there was the you know, common agricultural policy, which would be some form of subsidisation for a, a farmer, that's going to be kind of phased out. And things like environmental land management, where effectively, you know, you're more rewarded for how you become, like I say, this custodian of the land rather than so much on what you grow on it. Um, these are all things that have been kicking around for a while, and that's now um, has been given the royal assent. I think I think last week. So um, yeah, I th- I'm hoping in a way it's become this sort of firing pistol that means that UK government uh, and the various policy initiatives that really came out of the 25-year environment plan back, I think, in 2018, including, um, like I say, you know, air quality, uh, bioeconomy, all these different initiatives um, have, have come out of that. And I think with the focus of the world on the UK during the first two weeks of November, I think the UK government realises it can't really, you know, um, well, I was going to say take its foot off the pedal. Perhaps that's uh, either an appropriate or not appropriate uh, metaphor to use in the context. But um, certainly, yeah, we need to kind of uh, redouble our efforts, I think, from a point of, from the policy point of view. Uh, government needs to redouble its efforts to um, make sure that there is um, a legacy of COP26, which is that the UK becomes the, the a real kind of... Um, pioneer of, of environmental legislation and action. I think that's a very um, nice one to start it off riding up because we wanted to have a quick sort of recap on, on COP26. I think the uh, the sort of starting pistol analogy is a, is a very good one to sort of start riding up when we look at COP26, <clears throat> looking ahead at COP26, COP27, you know, um, a lot of commitments have been made, including, you know, you know, our own London Declaration review of standards. Um, there's a lot of programmes which sort of have a decade's worth of action. There's a lot of exciting initiatives sort of coming f- from COP. What do you think is the sort of starting pistol, as you say, what, what the sort of, um, you know, to, as the final question, what, what the sort of near term sort of future hold? Obviously, you know, I'll give an energy point of view because that's the area that I'm closest to. For us, uh, you know, it was very interesting to see all the things coming together. We had the global energy crunch sort of, you know, coinciding with, with COP26 and, and the recognition that um, renewable energy is going to play a sort of very large part. I joined the roundtable uh, for Mission Innovation, which is the global initiative, uh, which looks at uh, innovating in energy and, and looking at, you know, hydrogen, variable renewable energy and how we integrate that into the grid. That's a decade's worth of uh, of action. So, so that's, that's sort of very exciting. So for me, you know, from an energy point of view, it, it seems to be, you know, where, what is the role of standards? How do we sort of support this? And very much looking again, you know, how we started. COP26 seemed to focus very much on the implementation. For me, there seems to be a big role for us to say, what are the next steps from, uh, you know, again, looking at my sector specifically and energy, you know, what is our role of standards? We're doing quite a lot there already. How can we build out on that success? And really, how can we make sure that standard sort of, um, you know, again, accelerates that, that transition and make sure that it supports, you know, new new technologies in, in energy, thinking about, you know, things like carbon capture and storage, variable renewable energy across across the globe, all, all of that. Do you guys have any sort of views on, on what the next sort of 12 months hold looking at COP27? Um, you know, what, what these sort of sort of actions are? And, and for you, David, I'm particularly thinking, you know, the London, you know, declaration, you know, that there's, you know, a lot coming off of that from a standards point of view. Well, uh, Nick, do you want to maybe uh, t- you know put a kind of uh, a transport mobility lens onto onto that? Given that Seb's talked about energy, and I can maybe yeah sort of perhaps sum up from a um, a more sort of horizontal sectoral perspective. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's interesting and it is a great analogy, the, the starting pistol. I think for me, in some ways, in, in transport, um, the starting pistol is is kind of aimed directly at road transport, really. I think, you know, most most developed countries are certainly looking at road transport as, as the most polluting um, you know, transport mode um, as, as the as the target, um, and actually, I thought, you know, COP twenty six was, it was very much a case of the UK showing its commitment to doing that, and we we're seeing that with not only the um, the focus on um, zero emission cars and vans, but also the commitments to ensure that all new um, HGV sold in the UK will be um, will be zero emission by 2040, and I I think that's interesting because 2040 seems a long way off, but actually um, BSI is involved now working with um, with with the Connected Places Catapult, um, DFT, and others looking at what technologies are going to make that happen. What are the technologies that are going to help decarbonize road freight and um, some of them are are really either in their infancy or not developed enough yet to be able to do it or need further research and development um, and that is not going to happen quickly but there are different options I think that's the positive there there are different options for doing it we're looking at battery electric um, fuel cell hydrogen electric road systems so yeah, overhead lines um, using um, and pantographs to connect HGVs to those lines so there's different technology options and the, the next five to ten years may, may be a case of working out which one of those is viable for, for the right um, use case if you like so I think I think what it's my feeling here is there's also a bit of a reality check which is Yes, we're going to see, we're already seeing truck manufacturers looking at short range electric trucks that could run, you know, around cities or do shorter journeys. But we have to be realistic. There's a huge amount of diesel and other fossil fuel vehicles on our roads. And, you know, I, I kind of feel that focusing on the goal, focusing on the destination with zero emission transport is important. But the journey to that to that point is as important, and so I think we'll see manufacturers and fleet operators trying to get their vehicles as efficient as they can. So make diesel as efficient as they can by mixing it or blending it with, you know, use use of biofuels. Whilst in parallel, um, they're looking at how we make this transition and these alternative technologies. Um, but certainly, our initial work has really shown that there's a lot of fantastic. Um, uh, research and development going on at the moment, um, including the zero emission road freight trials that the UK is uh, currently exploring, that is going to point the way to the right technology um, or technologies. There may be a blend of technologies. So I think the starting pistol for me is that is really focusing on uh, on road transport in in that context of transport. Um, but also it's about the date, you know, the starting pistol is saying we need to get there by 2040 or 2030, 2035, depending on where you are in the world. Um, now the challenge comes with actually how we're going to make it happen. And mm -hmm. as I said, I feel there's a bit of a reality check there, which is 
it's unrealistic to expect, you know, um, companies aren't just going to start taking vehicles off the roads between now and then because they're running on diesel. They'll they'll make they'll they'll strive to make diesel as efficient as it can be and to look to retrofit other technologies. But ultimately, um, you know, it's going to be a transition. And that that could take, you know, it will take 10 to 20 years in some of these areas. I think my yeah, my reflection probably is that um I've probably forgotten the question now, but just to, I guess to sum up, I mean, yeah, there are, there are micro kind of memories, as it were, of you know the event on the third of November with the um, the financial sector as, as represented by a number of different uh, Scottish-based um, organisations. Uh, yeah, it just showed me the fact that the work we're already doing, engaging with the financial sector, we we need to recognise that you know. For example, that can't just focus on some of the the big players act working in London. It's got to be where they're you know the leveling up, I suppose. Where there are examples of of industries, um, in this case in in, in Scotland, which uh, we can work with. So that some of the, there were some of those kind of um, opportunities that came out of, of of you know one morning of one day. Um, and I think um, I think what I would take away also, and I haven't mentioned this previously, was on the fourth day. So that's the, I think it was the Thursday, the fourth. We um, uh, we we hosted, or rather, we launched something called R Twenty Fifty World. So there's a uh, a website you can go to, which is R Twenty Fifty World or R Twenty Fifty dot World, um, and that almost takes it right the way back to that that opening address from Anthony Guterres, where he talked about you know this idea of you know we need greater clarification, but we also need to make sure that uh, that you know the standards that have been developed are um, you know as aligned as they can be. Um, Kind of paraphrasing a little bit, because we were always going to launch um, our 2050 world at COP26, but it almost gave it even more momentum. So that became that sort of uh, that accelerator in itself. Uh, and what that what that campaign is is recognition about the fact that there are different different um, uh, initiatives that have started um, in the last 12 months in particular, which are all aimed at trying to support non-state actors, to use that kind of UN phrase. In other words, companies, be they large corporates or SMEs, make that transition. But some sometimes there's a, a resistance, a reluctance to almost um, go on that journey because maybe there are too many different types of codes and frameworks out there. So what our 2050 world is an, an attempt at doing is BSI coming together, working with ISO uh, and IEC, also working with the UNFCCC and also working with the UN Race to Zero campaign and just trying to identify where there can be better coordination and collaboration and that's um, and clarity and credibility. And those are the, the kind of four C words, I suppose, I took out of the event. Um, so I think I'll probably almost end there by saying an initiative like our 2050 world is um, a, a, a really good um, stepping stone whereby we can say standards matter but where there are um, where there's good practice and standards that are being developed um, across this space by by other alliances, we just need to communicate with each other to make sure that there is some uh, clarity really for organisations wanting to make the change, so they know how they can make that change and they can do so with you know at the right pace, but also um, you know ha have the right credibility of output as well. And and um, you know it, it's uh, I think you know the, the road ahead will 
inevitably be, be one that's quite bumpy. But I think if we can kind of uh, communicate and, and, and collaborate, then I think it's going to be one that's perhaps um, a smoother transition through, through that degree of consensus building across different organisations. Brilliant. So I think uh, I think we'll conclude it there. I'll uh, I'll finalise with your uh, your quote then. So uh, and, and sort of rehash it slightly. So the direction has been set and the starting pistol has been uh, fired, and it will uh, will all be uh, action from here and, uh, and see where standards can really uh, support and enable that transition. So yes, thank you, uh, thank you all for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. You've been listening to BSI's Big Sustainability Ideas podcast. To find out more about how BSI can support your business, visit www.bsigroup.com and download our little book of Net Zero, as well as our annual Net Zero Barometer Report. Meanwhile, to hear more about the stories behind the standards, please also check out BSI's Education Podcast, which we highly recommend. Thank you, and see you soon, on whichever platform you listen to your podcasts.